Welcome to the Forensic Nutritionist Podcast. My name is Fiona Tuck. I'm a nutritional medicine practitioner and a qualified skin therapist for over 25 years. The Forensic Nutritionist Podcast takes an investigative approach into all things nutrition, gut health and skin, using qualified experts to bring you information that you can trust. We are all unique. The information presented herein is not intended to diagnose, to treat or cure disease. Please seek professional medical guidance prior to modifying any diet, exercise or lifestyle program. Let us begin. On the podcast today, we have Dr. Elena Pribble. She is a senior scientist and research officer with the biotech company Microba, a leader in the analysis of the gut microbiome. She has expertise in human microbiome research, microbiology, and stress physiology in fish. Dr. Pribble moved to Australia in 2015, and she started working at the Australian Centre for Ecogenomics at the University of Queensland in the area of the human microbiome. Welcome, Dr. Elena. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Fiona. It's good to be here. Well, I'm very excited to be talking to you because... We're really talking today about the microbiome and also the efficacy, if you like. We'll be talking a little bit later on actual stool samples and, and what we can tell from those. But when it comes to gut research, what do we know so far about the gut microbiota? Because even when we say now gut microbiota, we used to call it gut microbiome. What, what is the difference between those two? Is there a difference? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's actually been a little bit of a, I think, a small scientific controversy for the last couple of years. Um, a while back, there was um, one scientist wanted to basically have a differentiation between those two terms and have the word gut microbiome basically refer to the genetic potential of all those microorganisms that live in our gut and the term microbiota to mean the actual species that comprise the gut microbiota or the gut microbiome. Um, however, since that time, as you've probably noticed in the media and, and throughout, you know, all of the, the traditional blog writing and everything, people often still refer to the individual species as the gut microbiome. And so recently a couple um, scientists in this area have actually done a bit of research and digging and they found that in some of the earliest papers that first coined the term gut microbiome, they actually were referring to all the species as well as all of the genes that comprise those species. So it is actually an all-encompassing term that can mean refer to species as well as all of the genes. And I think that's kind of where it's being landed now when you read the papers is that people are getting more comfortable with just being able to use the term gut microbiome to mean both. Right, well, that's good to know. So we could use either, um, but I find microbiome easier to use myself. So that's great, <laughs> that, that's great to know. So look, the, the research is changing almost, it seems, daily when it, when it comes to the research. What do we know at present, sort of briefly, I guess, about the, the gut microbiome in, in regards to things like the, the species of bacteria and, and where they're found? How do, we, how do we know what should be there and where they should be? That's a great question. Um, this is an area where I think you've probably heard before that we really are at the tip of the iceberg in discovering this. Um, you know, up until about the last 10 years, 
people really didn't think much about the gut microbiome or think about the fact that these microorganisms, mostly bacteria that live in our gut, are actually playing an essential role in our health. This is all mostly new research that's come about in the last decade. Um, thus far, we do know that we've found about 5,000 species that can inhabit the global gut microbiome but we still haven't discovered all of the species. We're still discovering new species that inhabit the gut every time new samples from new geographic areas are being sequenced. Um, we're also learning that um, most of those species that we're discovering are really difficult to grow in the lab. So in the past, you know, we learned about different bacteria by growing them in the lab and seeing what types of substances they produce under different types of conditions. Um, but most of those bacteria that live in our gut, they usually don't like growing in a lab under those typical media conditions. They usually grow in environments that don't have any oxygen, and they have very specific nutrient requirements. And a lot of times it's very difficult to figure out what those are. And a lot of times they're also very slow growing. And so basically only about 35% of the species that we've identified as being part of the gut microbiome have actually been grown in the lab. So what that means is the vast majority of species that inhabit our gut, we don't really know a lot about. We don't know, you know, confirmed in the lab what substances they produce or what types of conditions they're growing in, you know, how, how to grow them. And so this is where using techniques like DNA sequencing has really been playing a huge role is because now for the first time, we can actually see these species that we've never known about before just by being able to sequence the DNA of a stool sample. And using more advanced sequencing techniques, one that's called metagenomics, we can actually not only identify what species that might be, but also look at all the genes that that species contains, which will help us understand the role of that species in the gut. So we can look to see if there's genes that can break down protein versus breaking down fiber or genes that produce beneficial substances or substances that might be more harmful to our health. So there's a lot we can learn from the DNA of a microbe. And that's where the field is now, why it's really fast forwarding so quickly is because we don't necessarily have to grow the species in the lab to learn about what role it has in our gut. But with that said, we have a lot to learn still. Absolutely. Um, but it's so fascinating as well that, you know, we're still learning so much more and finding out what these species are doing and even in a way how it can vary in, in different areas in the world and, and vary by what our diet is as well. That's what I find absolutely fascinating. Um, look, when it comes to a healthy gut, we hear, we hear so much in the media about we have to have a healthy gut, keep your gut healthy. There's a lot of products out there that are promoting healthy gut. Apart from obvious symptoms of things like, you know, gut discomfort and IBS and, and the common gut issues, how, is there any way we can tell when our gut bacteria is out of whack? Because obviously there are different species, they have different um, functions, if you like, in, in the body and there's so much we don't know. Could, can we tell um, what is actually going on? Are there symptoms that we, we could look for? Well, I mean, I think the typical symptoms would be what you've already described. You know, we have bloating or cramping or, you know, diarrhea, constipation. They'd be your common gut discomfort symptoms. Um, but one good thing that we have been able to tell apart from that is being able to, by using DNA sequencing, looking at a person's gut microbiome, there's been a lot of research now to basically identify not necessarily what is a bad gut microbiome, but what 
is what do we see that's really common in healthy people? Right. Um, and then being able to compare what the healthy microbiome looks like compared to people that have different diseases. And so right now we've seen, you know, pretty much almost any disease you can name has had a link to the gut microbiome, where basically a study has shown that someone with a disease has a different gut microbiome to someone that's healthy. Now, from all of those healthy people, we've been able to kind of get a pretty good picture of different contributing factors to a healthy gut microbiome. And so those are some of the key indicators that I think are pretty good now to be able to, to look at and say, okay, is your gut functioning the way it should be, the way that it looks like it's functioning in healthy people from all of these studies? Right. That, I mean, yeah, that's, I guess that's the key thing to learn, isn't it? And I guess that's not mainstream knowledge yet. And that's such an exciting area of research. So when it does come to, I guess, a, a healthy gut or, or people that have lower disease and in, in that the healthy people, is there a particular bacteria that we're looking for to be prevalent or is, say, somebody that's prone to cancer, specific cancers, is there a particular bacteria that they have more of? Is, is there sort of some information that you can share there? I know it's a very generalistic question. <laughs> No, it's fine. Um, and you know, it's, it's really interesting because I think a lot of people tend to get really hung up on the bacterial species that are present in the gut. Yeah. And um, what we're actually seeing is that, you know, everybody's gut microbiome is incredibly unique. Like, as I said, there's over 5,000 species that have been identified so far, and that's only the tip of the iceberg. And so there's an infinite combination of different bacterial species that can occur in our gut. And so what we're actually seeing is instead of really focusing on the species, what's likely going to be more important in looking at a healthy gut versus an unhealthy gut is what are those gut bacteria actually doing? What is their function? And so we know that for in a healthy gut, that there's some key functions we need our bacteria to be performing. And so um, some of those are one is producing short chain fatty acids. Now there's three primary short chain fatty acids that our bacteria produce, and these are acetate, propionate, and butyrate. Now, all three of these play incredibly important roles in maintaining our gut health. We know that butyrate is the main fuel source for our colon cells, which helps maintain that intestinal cell barrier. It also suppresses inflammation in our gut. It can promote the production of serotonin by our intestinal enterochromatin cells. And it can also actually signal cells in our gut to produce hormones like peptide YY and GLP-1 that signal our brain to tell us to stop eating after we've had a meal. So like butyrate is just playing a huge number of roles in both our metabolic and our immune system and even our nervous system. And then when you look at propionate, it's playing an important role in our metabolic system because it's actually, once it's produced by our gut bacteria, it gets um, transported to our liver where it's the main source of gluconeogenesis, which is where our body can get glucose to put into the bloodstream when our blood sugar levels start to drop. So it's a way that our body is able to balance our blood sugar levels. Um, propionate's also suppressing inflammation in our gut, and it can also um, signal our gut cells to produce those hormones that are gonna tell our brain to stop eating when we're full. And acetate as well can also suppress inflammation and also have metabolic um, signaling where it can tell our brain to stop eating when we're full. So, these short chain fatty acids are so incredibly important for our health. And what we commonly see is that healthy people have a really good ability to produce those. And people that have disease often have a decreased ability to produce those. And Dr. Elena, would that be more just 
because of their sort of general makeup or is that really dependent on what they're eating and say the amount of prebiotics that they're actually getting in the diet? Yes, thank you for reminding me, Fiona. That's a very good point, is the way that those short-chain fatty acids are being produced is when our bacteria are breaking down fiber. Um, they can produce small amounts when they break down protein, but it's really not very much. The primary way that they are going to produce those beneficial short-chain fatty acids is by breaking down fiber, which leads me to the second um, characteristic of people that have a healthy gut microbiome is that they have a good number of species that can break down fiber. And they have usually more species that can break down fiber than species that specialize in breaking down protein. So basically, fiber is the best source of energy for our gut bacteria because that's going to be producing those short-chain fatty acids. But when we don't feed our body enough fiber, then our gut bacteria have to look for different fuel sources. And a lot of times that's going to end up being protein. And so a lot of times people that are like on the high-protein, low-carb diets, they're eating more protein than their bodies can actually absorb and that excess protein makes it to the colon and is available for your gut bacteria and so if they're not getting any fiber they're going to start eating all that protein and when they start breaking down protein they're producing a huge variety of different metabolites mm. some of them can be good because they can produce small amounts of the short chain fatty acids but a lot of them are going to cause inflammation in our bodies so key metabolites that they end up producing can be things like branch chain amino acids which um, in general, people often think are really good because it's the building blocks for muscle. And I know some people take them as supplements, but when our gut starts overproducing them, it's actually been shown that it can throw off our metabolism and high levels of branch chain amino acids in our bloodstream are now an indicator of type two diabetes is a key marker for that. And a lot of that is being sourced from our gut bacteria. Uh, gut bacteria can also produce compounds, one's called trimethylamine, that can be converted in our liver to something called trimethylamine and oxide that's been highly correlated with heart disease. Our gut bacteria also produce lipopolysaccharides that uh, basically trigger our immune cells to promote inflammation. Then um, they can also produce things like hydrogen sulfide that can, at high levels, can start breaking down our gut barrier. So there's all these different substances that our gut bacteria can start to produce when we're not feeding them enough fiber, which is why it's so important to make sure that everybody's trying to get um, the recommended amount of fiber in their diet, which is 28 grams per day for women and 38 grams per day for adult men. Absolutely. And, you know, it's one of the things I'm always harping on about. And it, it, it's not a, a sexy thing to talk about, you know, increasing the fiber in your diet, but it, it's so important for um, general health and well-being. And I think if you look at the traditional, you know, Western diet now, which is high fat, high protein and low fiber, it really does um, point to everything that you're saying and confirms everything that you're saying and how that can affect the microbiome and also that in increased risk with with disease. And I, I, I do think as well, you know, with the, the diets that are coming out with, say, keto diet, paleo diet, which are very high protein and, and high fat as well, that that for me is, is something to be concerned about. Yes, exactly. I mean, there needs to be a lot more research on these new fad diets that come out on how they're actually influencing the gut microbiome. Because anytime you're removing, you know, an entire food group, and especially fiber, that's going to probably end up having a pretty detrimental effect. And now we know why that fiber is so important for us. Absolutely. I mean, when it comes to something you were saying about having sort of the, the lipopolysaccharides and, and things can be... Um, 
and, and different metabolites that can be produced depending on our, on our diet. How, when it comes to stool sample testing, this is something that is relatively new. And I, I know, you know, I guess some experts are, are saying the, the research and the evidence isn't there. But, you know, I guess from my understanding, just finding out a little bit of extra information can be beneficial, even if it's to help you know what you're not eating enough of because surely that will show in your in your stool sample what what can a stool sample tell us at this stage oh it's a great question um and this is where i think that it's really depending on how you're getting that stool sample tested as to what information it can tell you and so when you're just getting it like a culture-based test those are pretty much just looking for pathogens and your lactobacillus and your bifidobacteria just a few target organisms that can grow well in the laboratory but you're not getting the full picture of what's really there and what they're doing um, when you do a test that uses the metagenomic um, dna sequencing that's where you're actually able to get that full picture where you're able to see not only who is there at very high resolution so at that species level but also you're able to get a picture of all the genes within those species. So if you remember, I said earlier that most of the species um, haven't been grown in the lab, so we don't really know what they're capable of doing. But when we do metagenomic sequencing, we basically get the blueprint of those newly discovered species. So we can now see which genes they have to be able to produce those different metabolites that I was talking about. And so that's what is really exciting right now and what's really propelling the field forward is now we can look at somebody's functional potential based on their stool samples. So we can see, all right, how good is your potential to produce butyrate and propionate and acetate? Or how good is your potential to produce the more harmful metabolites like trimethylamine and levopolysaccharides? And the nice thing is we also have enough study now to show that a lot of those metabolites are influenced by our diet. And so we know that people that eat diets that are low in fiber and you know high in protein, and especially eggs and red meat, they're going to tend to usually have um, a higher ability to produce things like trimethylamine and lipopolysaccharides compared to somebody that has a diet higher in fiber. So if you get your tests done and you see that, you know, maybe some of those more um, harmful metabolites, the potential to produce them is quite high and the potential to produce some of those really beneficial ones is quite low. That's probably a good indicator that you're not getting enough fiber in your diet and that you might want to revisit ways on how you can add more fiber in. And when it comes to, I mean, we're talking about metabolites here, but what about, say, um, you know, potentially pathogenic bacteria that may be in the gut? I mean, don't we, we all have that bacteria there, don't we? It, how, when does it become pathogenic? You know, that's a good question. Um, it, it, it's a very good question right now around clinical relevancy and at what levels does something become, you know, actually problematic. And usually those levels are when you start having symptoms, when you start actually, you know, feeling constipation or diarrhea. Um, when those symptoms evolve, that's when it becomes a problem. But for the most part, we do see people have a lot of pathogenic bacteria, but they're at very low levels. So um, like for DNA metagenomic testing, like right now with the microba test, we can detect anything that's above a relative abundance of 0.05%, which is quite low, but there's still quite a few species that are well below that level. Um, and I think most pathogens that might be kind of hiding in your gut are typically below that level. And, you know, you're just a carrier. You're, they're not causing any problems for the majority of people. Um, it's something that you never even really see on a report because they're at such low levels. 
it's only really the people that actually are presenting with symptoms where we start to see those levels of pathogens really start to come up to noticeable levels. Right. And when we're looking at, say, bacteria, if somebody has, you know, from a test and you can see that maybe that they're low in a particular beneficial bacteria, what can we actually do about that? I mean, where do you, where do you stand on, say, the use of probiotics? How effective are they? Um, so I think, again, just in terms of being concerned about not having a specific species of bacteria, again, I think I'd like to stress that people shouldn't be getting too hung up on which species they have or do not have and be more concerned about what those bacteria are actually doing. So looking at the functions, because there's so many species that are just not very well studied that are probably also just as important as the ones that are really well studied that we all know about. And so being able to look at what they're actually doing is going to be more important. So focusing on, you know, do you have a good ability to produce those really beneficial substances is going to be more important than do I have good levels of bifidobacteria. With that said, um, I mean, right now where the scientific evidence is with probiotics is I think there has been quite a bit of evidence showing that specific strains of probiotics can be effective at treating specific symptoms, you know, like constipation or diarrhea. Um, but in terms of just healthy people taking a probiotic, um, there's really no scientific evidence to show that healthy people taking a probiotic is having any benefit. Um, with that said, again, it's really going to come down to it's very strain specific. And so everything that we see in the literature right now is that, you know, specific strains have very good, you know, have very specific targets on what they're able to help with. And so it's really about trying to choose, you know, perhaps a probiotic that's going to help treat a symptom that you're trying to um, reduce. And, you know, if somebody's taking a probiotic, they may be listening and, and they're taking a probiotic because they've read, oh, it's good for my health and I should be having probiotics because that has been in the media quite a bit. Um, is that potentially, you know, can you have too much of a good thing? Say you've already got um, specific bacteria that doesn't need replacing and then they're taking probiotics with that bacteria. Is there a potential to then have an adverse effect on the gut? You know, I'm not really sure about that. I haven't seen anything that shows that probiotics can be bad for your health. Um, typically, you know, probiotics, you know, definition is that they shouldn't be causing any harm. Um, but, you know, with most things, you know, too much of anything can often not be good. But um, I haven't seen any evidence that shows that too much of a probiotic can be detrimental. There was just one paper about a year ago that showed if you have antibiotics and you take a probiotic during that, it can actually take longer for your native gut flora to recover um, afterwards because then the probiotics have started to colonize a little bit and they displace your native flora from recovering. That's but right. That was yeah. sample size and I think there definitely needs to be more study on that before we reach actual conclusions. Yeah, I, I read that. It was, um, yeah, it was quite quite a surprise when it came out. I think it caused, yeah, caused a bit of a stir. Um, so with stool sample tests, um, say with, with the microba test, what are the limitations? I mean, it's amazing so far what we can tell. What can't it, what can't it tell us? Are there, I mean, are people sort of relying on them too much? Um, I think I hopefully it needs to be, you know, contextual. And so, I mean, stool testing right now, it's, it's really just informational only. Um, if you go to a GP and you're concerned you have a specific pathogen, then you can get the actual diagnostic testing where they'll 
probably be looking for, you know, a qPCR panel where they're targeting key, di you know, pathogens that could be making you really sick. Um, but general gut microbiome testing isn't targeting any key pathogens or anything. It's just trying to tell you everything that's there. Um, so it's not diagnostic. It's only informational. So it's not going to be able to diagnose a specific disease that you may have or tell you how to, how to treat that disease. It's really an informational tool to let you understand how is your gut functioning and should you be thinking about making some tweaks to your diet to make it function better. Um, the other thing to think about with stool testing is that if you are really only looking at the gut community that's living, you know, down in your lower large intestine, you're not, um, we have different communities of bacteria that live all the way along our gut. So starting, you know, in our esophagus, down to our stomach, into our small intestine, and in the upper large intestine, all of those different communities are different because there's different environments in our body and all those different areas. You know, like in our stomach, it's highly acidic, whereas, you know, when you get down to your small intestine, it's going to be less acidic. And in our large intestine, it's actually, there's no oxygen there. And so it's, it's anaerobic and it's less acidic. And so you have different communities. And so, um, and even within the mucus layers of your gut, you have a different community than is in the lumen, which is the area where all the food is passing through. And so stool testing is really limited to just looking at the lumen of the lower small intestine. We're not capturing what's in the mucus layer or higher up. It can't talk, it can't detect SIBO or gut problems that are higher up in the gastrointestinal tract. Um, but with that said, that stool testing, you know, all these studies that we're seeing coming out in the gut microbiome, the majority of them are relying on stool because it's the easiest way to get a sample. Otherwise, we'd have to be taking biopsies, which aren't very comfortable. And so we are still getting really significant signals when we use stool, which is pretty amazing. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And even I think sometimes, you know, when I, I speak to, to clients, they can, they can say they have a really healthy diet, but they may very easily be missing out on getting enough fiber in the diet. And sometimes it's not until you see it on paper that it's that wake up call that, that you may need to, to have a change to the diet. Talking exactly. about Talking about diet, how much do the test results vary depending on, on what we've been eating? So, for instance, let's say you went away at the weekend and your diet probably wasn't what it should be and um, you took the test on the Monday. How, how significant is it? Do you have to sort of prepare for the test and eat certain – I mean, you know, obviously I would presume that it's going to vary depending on what you've been eating. No, that's exactly right. So your gut microbiome is very responsive to what you eat, to your diet. Um, and studies have actually shown that it, it'll shift daily based on what you eat. Um, what we always recommend for somebody prior to taking a stool test is just to maintain your normal habits for at least a week prior to sampling. So yeah, don't go out and binge on the weekend and have something that you normally wouldn't eat. Try yeah. to maintain the regular diet for at least a week prior to sampling, so you can get a picture of what your normal gut microbiome would look like. Right. And the other thing with your gut microbiome is that what we've been able to see in the research is that typically all of us have the same, we all have like a core set of species that are always in our gut, but the abundance of those species will shift depending on what we eat. So, you know, some of those species are gonna be really great at eating fiber, and some of those species might be really great at only eating protein, and some of them are going to be able to eat both of those different sources of fuel. And so depending on if we just, you know, had like a great steak and, you know, some chocolate cake for dinner, we're going to get a bloom of those species that, you know, focus on breaking down protein, 
and all the ones that break down fiber are going to kind of get low, you know, get reduced abundance. And then if we were to go the next day and have a wonderful, you know, like whole grain quinoa and kale salad or something, we'd see a nice bloom of our fiber degraders. Right. But it's going to take about, you know, about a day or two for that to show up because of the transit time of the food. Right. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. So if somebody is going to take the test and, and they get a feedback of their diet and what maybe they need to reduce diet-wise and what they need to in- increase, how often would you recommend taking the microba test? Yeah, it's really dependent on the individual. So, I mean, a lot of people come to get their, just to see how their gut is functioning and they actually have a beautiful gut microbiome. Like everything's, you know, just the way it should be. And so for those people, it would really just be maintaining their current habits and they probably don't really need to get tested. Maybe they'd like to like once a year to just check to make sure they're still on track, but they don't really need to get tested very often at all. But then, you know, people that might, you know, want to have an intervention, maybe they get their gut microbiome tested and they see it's not, as good as they'd like it to be and that they should be adding more fiber to their diet. They might want to try to do, you know, a good diet intervention. And we do usually recommend that we try to make sure that people actually wait to retest until after they've formed a habit of whatever intervention they've chosen. So, you know, if they're adding a lot more fibrous foods into their diet, try to maintain that for maybe, you know, two to three months to make sure it's actually been a habit and it's not just a short-term thing that you're going to switch back to after you've retested. Right. And that, that all makes perfect, perfect sense. And I think the importance of getting into a habit <laughs> is, is very, very important because I think as humans, we can, we can get excited and, and do something, you know, for a few days and then fall out of the, out of the um, habit, if you like, because we haven't even got into the habit. And um, that's when we don't see, don't see the results of that. But I, I do think that the whole gut microbiome is a very, very exciting area of research. Um, How does the microba test differ to the the other tests that are available? I think you may have covered that a little bit earlier, um, talking about the genetic sequencing. Yeah, so um, there's a lot of different versions of gut microbiome tests out there. The vast majority of commercial companies that offer gut microbiome testing are going to be either using um, a DNA sequencing method called 16S rRNA gene sequencing, or they're going to be growing the, the bugs in the laboratory using a culture medium. Right. And um, with the 16S rRNA gene sequencing, some companies are also calling that metagenomics, but it's not true metagenomics because what they're doing is they're just looking at a very small portion of a single gene that occurs in all bacteria species, which is the 16S ribosomal gene. And that basically acts as like a fingerprint to identify groups of bacteria. Um, The issues with that is because you're sequencing such a small amount of DNA from each organism, you're not able to get to the species level resolution. You can only tell um, it's the next taxonomic level up, genus level. And there can be hundreds of species within a genus of bacteria. You also don't get any insight into what that species is able to do. So you're not, you know, sequencing all the genes in the organism. You're just looking at like a couple hundred base pairs from a single gene. So that gives you no information about the func- what that organism is actually doing functionally in your body. And then I guess probably the most important is just the fact that 
you know, we're really seeing that, you know, it's at that species and strain level that it's really important that, you know, different bugs can have different genes, even, you know, when you look at, say, like Bacteroides, you can have, you know, some really good Bacteroides species like Bacteroides uniformis um, that are doing a lot of great things in your body, but then you can also have ones that are, you know, been correlated with heart disease and, you know, with colon cancer. And they're all within that same group of Bacteroides. And so if you do 16S, you can't differentiate between those two. Right, right. That's really interesting. Now, if I think, oh, sorry. Just, just I just want to add on one thing real quick, too. Yes. I think maybe a lot of the um, earlier, all anybody ever used was that 16S, our RNA gene sequencing. And because it tells you so little information, that's where it really hasn't been clinically relevant at all. And that's where a lot of the, the, I, the, the basically, you know, everybody's having the discussions that, you know, the technology isn't there yet to be able to tell much. Um, the fact is, is that we do have good technology now with the shotgun metagenomic sequencing, which can tell us a lot more clinically relevant information. And that's what's developing right now, which is what's so exciting. But it's that 16S RNA gene sequencing that couldn't tell us that much clinically relevant information that has been shown to be not quite as useful to most people. It's fascinating, fascinating stuff. I, I did the microba um, training a couple of weeks weeks ago and um, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it and found it very, very interesting. Dr. Elena, if somebody is interested in taking the microba stool sample test, how can they, they find out more information? Oh, that's great. So this is kind of my baby. So in the report, um, you can actually click on any bacteria name, or any metabolite name, and there's gonna be a description that's gonna pop out on the right-hand side that'll basically tell you what we currently know about that species or that metabolite based on the latest scientific literature. And then um, below that description, there's a series of numbers, which are all the hyperlinked references to the scientific journal articles that, was, that, the, that the description was actually written on. And so if you're really interested and in, say you have like a high abundance of a particular species and you would like to learn more about it and there's actually research that's been done on it, you can just click on the link and read the papers yourself if you're interested and dig as deep as you'd like. Um, somebody could literally spend days <laughs> typing through all the information in that report if you go through and read all the different descriptions. Well, I, I realize that myself. So um, it, it is fascinating information. And I think the more we the more we know about it, the more we realize we don't know about it, um, which in a way makes it even more exciting. Um, just for time reasons, we, we all have to finish there today, Dr. Elena, but I think you've covered some really valuable and fascinating information with us today. And I, I hope later on down the track we can we can have you back on um, to share more of your of your expertise. If anybody wants to contact you, is there a way they can find you online? Um yeah, actually if you just go to the microba.com website um, and to contact us. We've got our email address there. It's info at microba.com. And if somebody emails that, um, usually things, if they have a question, um, we can get that answered for them usually. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you.